And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whichever may be the case around this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn, where tonight we're going to talk about a literal revolution in civilization. Because that's what we're going through. In every direction that we look, apropos of tonight's banner, uh, we're not in Kansas anymore. And if you think you are, if you think things are ever going to return to, quote, normal, then I've got a uh, 1935, 33 movie that you should see. A really good movie. Really, really good. So tonight I have my old friend and colleague, Joseph Farrell, finally, after... I, it's been years. It, it's really been years, you know, together on the same show. We've, we've communicated, but we haven't done any shows. And so much has happened, which I'm going to try to put on the table tonight, set the table as the background to Joseph's conversation with, with us. And so let me begin. For those of you who are new to the show, you go to the other side of midnight.com. Click on tonight's banner. That will take you to the guest page. Under the guest page, you will see uh, lines that say things like, oh, let me see. Fast links to items and fast links to bios. Um, You click on my items, click on my name. That will take you to the appropriate part of the guest page we call Brady with Pictures. So item number one. One of the really important backdrops for this conversation tonight is, of course, it's the literal two-year anniversary of the insanity going on in Ukraine, which has only proceeded by, like, what, a year, uh, give or take, a year and a half, before the insanity going on in Israel and Gaza. The world is not moving in the right direction. It is obviously, obviously precipitously hurtling toward some kind of a cliff. I have not felt the hot breath of nuclear war since I was in the first grade, since duck and cover, you know, and Conrad and uh, Fulton Lewis Jr. And, and you know, the usual things that were going on at the height of the Cold War um, when I was of an age where I could listen and to understand that the world was really dangerous. Well, it's it's worse tonight. It's really worse tonight, which, of course, is what uh, item number one is all about. This is from The Hill, which is the official uh, congressional newspaper published on The Hill. G7 leaders admonish Russia for irresponsible nuclear rhetoric. The second anniversary of Ukraine war. And then you click on that. This is, this is really memorable. The group of seven G7 leaders reprimanded Russia Saturday for its use of irresponsible nuclear rhetoric on the second anniversary of the Kremlin's invasion of Ukraine. Quote, Russia's irresponsible nuclear rhetoric, its posture of strategic intimidation, and its undermining of arms control regimes are unacceptable. And that's the way it goes, because this is the backdrop. My my position, my absolute adamant feeling is that unless something radically, overwhelmingly huge 
in the history of humanity takes precedence, assumes somehow priority in people's concerns and rhetoric, that civilization, as you and I know it, is headed for the trash heap of history. And civilizations do not die peacefully or quietly. They are very, very dangerous, as Carl would say, to beagles and begonias. So, the good news tonight is with my old friend and colleague, Joseph. I'm going to share with him stunning, amazing new lunar revelations coming from this ongoing mission, I Am One, or Odysseus, that are going to, in the coming days, blow the doors off of the cover-up as more and more honest people are taking a look, are going to take a look. And so, through this show and through other shows that I'm going to be doing in the coming few days, a lot of people, millions of people are going to know that the IM team, the Intuitive Machines team in Houston, which have sent now the first successful private mission to the moon, and it's a U.S. mission. They have been communicating, kind of like in code, the reality of what is around the moon, this incredibly vast, incredibly ancient, incredibly high-tech, ancient lunar glass dome. Smart architecture, not just glass. And my dear friend, Joseph, has made made years ago, although I don't think he knows it, a major contribution on the road of providing additional, totally independent confirmatory evidence of the dull model by pointing me in a direction that until I read one of his uh, uh, last books, The What About McCarthy, which is full of really, really interesting gems. But you got to dig three layers deep. Okay. Anyway, so was that when we when we get Joseph on, I will I will go through how he really made an extraordinary contribution to this investigation, and it has paid off. So, item number two. This is the official NASA news conference with Intuitive Machines, who's the company in Houston which is built and paid for raising capital using the usual capitalist stuff. The first private mission to the moon. And it's sitting on the moon tonight. Well, yes, it's sitting on the moon. And no, it's not sitting on the moon. Go to item number three. This is a uh, Space News story gleaned from the press conference in the link above as to what has happened to the Intuitive Machines' first American corporate lunar lander. It tipped over. It's not sitting upright. It's lying flat on its side like a like somebody pushed over, some kid pushed over a phone booth or a TARDIS. They're about the same size. They're all the same size. Not an accident, according to Intuitive Machine. Anyway, so if you look at that picture, and if you actually click on the story, item number three, and click on that picture, which is below this, you can see that in the little model, isn't it great to have modelers and model people that understand the incredible value of a model, even in a digital age? So he got, this is the, the head of the Intuitive Machines, uh, Alderman, Steve Alderman. Anyway, so he's got this lander tipped over. He thinks, they think, his team thinks, NASA thinks, 
interpreting the telemetry. That the lander, sometime between landing and yesterday, yesterday morning, tipped over. Or it may have tipped over from the beginning and they just got late readings and whatever. The point is it's on its side. Now that has huge implications for the success of the mission going forward, the real mission. And we're not going to spend a lot of time tonight on uh, Odysseus because we're going to do that tomorrow night with our special guest at the top of the show, Nova Spivak, who I can say categorically, looking at the model there in uh, Steve's hands, is father, grandfather, you know, the, the Harry Seldon of Space Archives, of a bouncing baby lunar archive on the moon, successfully sitting in the body of that tipped-over lander. And that's not going to be a trivial or, 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 or complicated issue for people forevermore to spot. So now we know where the first American lunar archive is that successfully landed, as opposed to the similar archive that he put on Barashit, the Israeli mission several years ago, which crashed. Both archives are still there. You know, the crash did not destroy the archives because of the incredible technology that uh, Nova has brought to the bear, the subject of, of ancient, long-survivable archives. You inscribe them with little teeny tiny drills in nickel, the element nickel, metal nickel. Who would have thought that a nickel was so valuable? Anyway, so they'll last... Some estimates are that those archives, Nova's archives, which, by the way, drumroll please, includes now two copies of Monuments of Mars, a city on the, on the edge of forever, and the secret mission, the dark mission of NASA, on the moon in the archives tonight on the lunar surface. And not a lot of people can say that. Which brings me to item number four, because... Um, the ongoing uh, Odysseus mission, before it landed, went into what's called a lunar parking orbit for a day or two, went around and around and around, and they released one picture at the press conference up above from the press conference of the actual moon as it looks like from lunar orbit. And it is so stunning, so paradigmically shattering, so impossibly confirming of the ancient lunar dome glass model because it was designed to be. I've been wondering ever since they sent us back the first images from low Earth orbit why the um, Odysseus mission has these incredibly wide angle lenses on the cameras. You know, where you see huge distorted view of the lander and then you see a distorted view of what's you know in space next to the lander in the first image it was the earth and the distortion gets a lot worse at the edge than it is in the center as you can tell from the um, shot of the falcon 9 second stage in earth orbit stunning beautiful shot you know interesting scientifically stunning poetic and i said to myself then okay we have really good cameras and when we get into lunar orbit, they're going to blow our socks off. Provided we get to see a picture. Well, they released one picture. There's nothing from the surface. They landed Thursday uh, and, and in the afternoon, 
It's now Friday, Saturday, almost Sunday. No images, no nothing from the surface. But we did, at the press conference, get this image. This is so astonishingly important. Click on it and look at it really carefully. And then let me read to you a response from a, quote, layman. This is someone who's not like an engineer or a scientist or a space guy or whatever. It's, he just, just happens to be an award-winning jazz musician. And he is also, we're so really, really, really lucky, um, our um, audio expert, you know, balancing and listening and trebling out. And he and Kanthea do this kind of do si with with the shows after they're recorded. And believe me, Chris is a huge part of why they actually sound halfway decent. Anyway, so he wrote to me this afternoon after seeing the photo, which you're seeing in item number four. And he wrote this. Hi, Richard. I wish sometimes that I had a scientific or engineering background so I could make a quali- quantified, I'm sorry, qualified assessment of such things, i.e. this picture. But the bizarre orbital photo released by Intuitive Machines seems to me to show the dome remnants clearly outlined around and above the perimeter of the moon, especially on the right-hand portion of the image. If not, then what is it? Don't scientists and journalists see this? Furthermore, the weird reflective mirror image of the sun on the left seems to split into the two mirrored sides at the same distance from the moon's surface as is the apparent dome on the right-hand side. I also felt that the congratulatory proclamation that the spacecraft was upright and the landing was success were extremely premature. But then again, what was the NASA administrator to do other than read his pre-written speech? It's even worse, Greg. Uh, I'm sorry, Chris. Um, he had a tape. That, that, that was not live. That was a tape that they punched in when they thought they were landing upright. Seems like, going back to Chris, seems like just another in a series of confirmations of your well-researched series. It's almost Trumpian, if I may use that phrase, in how the narrative is not the reality and mainstream folks are not yet seeing what's staring them in the face or questioning what's really being told to us. Am I in the right ballpark on this, he said. I realize there is also a possibility that surface photos post-landing may be currently sequestered and sanitized rather than non-existent. Thanks for keeping me on the email thread. It's been as fascinating to see how you all are trying to get to the bottom of this. And again, thanks and keep up the great work. Signed, Chris. So... If you, well, let, let, let's do this, all right? Let me bring on my guest and friend and colleague and longtime confidant on things that go bump in the night. Um, Joseph is, is well, how can I describe him? He's, he's kind of like a one of a kind. Um, he's written now, oh my God, I got to count them. One, two, three, four. Five, six, 
7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, 33, 34, 35 books and counting, because this is not a complete list, I know that, on the ancient super high civilizations of Earth, the remnant technology and the current geopolitical infighting going on totally behind the scenes for who is going to control all this as they move us paradigmically into a new age. And he is a, um, he's got a PhD in, I think it's theology from Oxford, if I'm not mistaken. And there's a whole bunch of other creds. You know, he's, he's a bestseller. Uh, he has his own uh, uh, YouTube channel and much more, you know, determination to do that than I, I have. Anyway, without further ado, Joseph, welcome to the other side of midnight. Hey, Richard, how are you doing? I am doing great. I have so, as the world is turning inside out like a, you know, triassic cube in front of us to, to want to talk to you and to talk to you in front of all our, our folks out there. Um, did you look carefully at image number four? Uh, let me look right now. I don't think I did. Where are we? Where is it on your page? Image number four. Yeah, there's a shortcut. Keith, you want to tell him how to get to the shortcut to the images? Keith? Hello? I don't think he's listening. <laughs> he may have had to go out of the room. Oh, wait a minute. Here, I see it. Image number four. Yeah, All right. Yeah. There we are. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> What are you looking at? Yeah, I have no idea. It looks to me well, like but, 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 you're you you you're, you're, like you're incredibly wise, aging like I am, you know, father wisdom and background and generalist expertise. And you're looking at an official NASA image and you say, paraphrasing, I don't know what the hell I'm looking at. Well, it looks to me like it's being shot by some that lunar probe and it's on some sort of extremely weird lens and the picture is all sideways too to boot so i would assume we're looking at the lunar surface that's what they tell us that's what they tell us you know oh my there's some reflection going on here (laughs) look on the look on the right look on the left look at the curve Look at the shape of that damn sun. Yeah, that's very weird. Well, look, I mean... And not only weird, it's refracted, it looks like. Yes, yes, it's a damn dome. I am absolutely confident tonight at 19.47 that the (laughs) mission of intuitive machines is to basically be the the forerunner of disclosure. The the clock has started Uh ticking. And yeah, that's weird. That now that now that you mention all that, Richard, I can see what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. Well, I have been asked by someone whose respect and and perspective um, uh, analysis I really I really do respect to send him an annotated version of this image where I label the various anomalies with numbers and then below uh-huh. I write a caption. I will send that around to everybody. In fact, we will post that on 
the website because there's so much damn deliberate strangeness in this one image, which, of course, to me, I looked at it and it was like, oh, my God, because that's the image ever since Apollo 10 and my beginning analysis of the potential of a, a dome from the Apollo 10 heritage images that I've expected to see if we had state-of-the-art digital color with good resolution and they wouldn't keep hiding them from us. And you see it right there. That's the yeah. top of the dome. They're 60 miles up. And you say to yourself, how the hell can you have a dome 60 miles high? To which I will remind you, I was good friends with Arthur C. Clarke, and Arthur's third law is any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. We're looking at magic, E-T, magic. And I have all these people for decades who keep trying to make sense of it in stupid terrestrial Kmart terms. Ah. Yeah. It's been frustrating. I'm so glad you see why this is an impossible image. Well, it 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 boggles the mind that they would let something like this out. No, it isn't. Unless, no, it unless, isn't. Unless, unless they're intending. Exactly. Yes. Sorry, I keep interrupting because I'm so excited. No, After all, I can tell. <laughs> well, look, look, you and I have been at this for a very long time, right? And what has this been but to try to look back through time at humanity's real nature, its real origins, its real history, and lay out for a contemporary audience the reality that we're not being given by any official sources? up to and including so-called education. It's all been censored, all of it. And this one picture tonight brings it totally into focus, and I find it very interesting. I've been obviously looking at this from the beginning, that a machine, a machine, a, a corporation officially named Intuitive Machines, which is left brain, right brain. You know, if you're looking at this symbolically, oh, really, we should look at this symbolically? Yes. Anyway. I don't want to prattle on, Joseph. We have three precious hours. Where do you want to go? Just to remind you, I I can only go an hour and a half tonight. <laughs> I I was I, I told you that in the email. I I can only go to about twelve thirty tonight. Twelve thirty my time. Well say, well. <laughs> so where do you want to go? Uh, this is your show. You you go where you want to go. Okay. Um. Tell you what, let me let me go back to this really interesting thing that I don't think you're aware of, which is okay. how which is how you help this dome research immeasurably. Okay. Go, go to go to item number five. Item number five. Uh, that would be the Project Diana radar bounce off of the moon. Yes. Okay. And, and this was contained, folks, in a really important book. That has, oh, boy, that, yeah. that has not gotten a lot of play, but should, because it contains what we used to call in the Hollywood biz Easter eggs. <laughs> and I'm not sure whether Joseph was aware of Easter when he put the two eggs in, at least two. But we're going to find out. So first one was he's talking about the, the hearings, the McCarthy hearings of the hunt of the House Un-American Activities Committee in Washington, D.C., the so-called red baiting hearings, the xenophobia against commies under every bed, the whole nine yards. 
And this was the equivalent of Roddenberry's The Dick, If It's Real, It'll Be on Television. Because these hearings were not only carried on television, they were carried on a far more powerful medium of the time, radio. It was wall to wall. You couldn't go anywhere without hearing these hearings. And the, the, the thread, the paper trail that Joseph picked up on was there appeared to be a subtext behind the McCarthy hearings, which very quietly from the wings kept whispering, QFOs, QFOs. So take it from there, Joseph. Well, let, let's clarify uh, something. First of all, McCarthy had nothing to do with the House on American Activities Committee hearings. The, the okay. committee that that he was the chairman of, and we're talking, uh, I think we're talking 1952. Yeah, of course, that's silly. Senate House, no, it could be the House. Yeah, yeah it, it was um, the Senate uh, Government Operations Committee that he was the chairman of. And I have been, uh, I've been, you know, I grew up in South Dakota, and Senator Carl Munch, you may remember him, yep, was my senior senator when I was a boy. And Senator Munch was one of the 22 senators, along with Dirksen, Goldwater, and a few others, that voted not to censure Joseph McCarthy. And he had... Yeah, he had, um, during his career as a senator, he would deposit books in the local public libraries, and many of the books that he deposited were defenses of McCarthy. So I read a lot of these books growing up. So I didn't I didn't grow up in a milieu where my knee-jerk reaction was to hate Senator McCarthy for oh. red-baiting and all the things that he's been accused very wrongly, incidentally. But uh, one of the things that intrigues about the man is that there's all of this literature out there about him, but no one cites the transcripts from his committee hearings. Hmm. <laughs> so I decided, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna get a hold of these hearings. And Richard, I I was dumbfounded to discover that the committee hearings of his investigations at Fort Monmouth, New Jersey, which is really the series of investigations that brought him to the tender attentions of the Pentagon. <laughs> it was, well, because that's the base in Jersey, the, uh, the what they call the, the Signal Communications Corps. Yeah, it was, it was the top secret research base for radar. Army, 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 DOD. I mean, the Army back then yeah. was still more powerful than Navy. So it was the it was the military voice, and right. there on that base they had a radio antenna that yep. the Signal Corps of Engineers used to yep. bounce beams off in nineteen forty six off the moon. Yes, and I had yep. not I had not remembered this for decades until you brought it out in this book. Well, McCarthy, there's there. Hang on, there's a lot more going on at Fort Monmouth. Anyway, I I sniffed around, and I found that the committee transcripts of his investigations into communist subversion at Fort Monmouth were hearing, were heard in executive session primarily, so they had been they had been classified up until 2003. And they were yeah, and they were only declassified. Hey, we're, we're at the bottom of the hour, so let's hold it there, okay? Okay. My All guest right. of the morning, 
is Dr. Joseph Farrell. His doctorate is in theology. Well, how does that get you to hyperdimensional physics? You'd be amazed at how short that path really, really runs. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Oakland. We will be back in a couple, three, four minutes. And of course, I'm really known for vamping. Stay tuned and do not touch that dial. Welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, the 24th of February of 2024. Lots of twos and 24s in there. My guest tonight is Dr. Joseph Farrell, an old friend and someone who I haven't really connected with on all the astonishing things going on until, uh, well, right now. So, Joseph, uh, we're we're back on the air. Uh, We were talking about the book on McCarthy and the so-called McCarthy hearing. And there's so much that no one knows about because they don't have the original sources. So that's right. So, so go, anyway, I had this surprise about uh, for mamas, you know, when we get to a stopping point. But let's continue with why you got interested because well, the last person on the planet that I would associate UFOs with is Joseph McCarthy. Well, yes, that's, that's the last person I would have thought of too. I got a hold of, of the Fort Monmouth transcripts that uh, had be, finally been declassified in 2003. And the, the reason that the Senate Government Operations Committee gave for the declassification was, okay, we can declassify it now because everybody mentioned in, in the transcripts is dead. Okay, that's an interesting reason. Yeah, that's an interesting reason, which I can tell, I can assure everybody is an entirely fallacious cover story <laughs> reason, because I I started reading these things. It's about two thousand pages worth of transcripts, but 
every now and then I, I, Richard, I was just, I was just gobsmacked by why, what I was reading because there were references to the air forces, uh, new security, uh, apparatus called blue book, which, <laughs> you know, which is kind of a giveaway about UFOs. And there were investigations going on by by McCarthy's committee of what was taking place at General Electric at the time. <laughs> you know, again, if you're a little bit, you mean you mean with our mutual Hungarian friend, with our mutual Hungarian oh. friend when he was yes, when he was up there, Gabriel Crone. Yes, the HDG engineer, hyperdimensional engineer, the hyperdimensional engineer, and then uh, there were repeated, and this is what really really clued me in that that joseph mccarthy knew at that time and it's very very clear when you read the transcript he was not a stupid man he had a memory that was just absolutely phenomenal and when he is present at some of these hearings he starts questioning the military about their radar experiments that are going on now get this this is a date that he will drop repeatedly in these transcripts. What sort of radar experiments were you guys doing down there in July of 1947? In, in New Mexico. Mexico. In New Mexico. Now, folks, if you're if you're up on your ufology, that's of course <laughs> the time period of Roswell. Now, here's the other thing. These Fort Monmouth hearings are taking place in the same time window as the big 1952 UFO flap over Washington, oh, D.C. Right. That's right. Yes. So, in other words, McCarthy, and, and the same thing holds for Roy Cohn. He gets in a few questions on the same topics as well. Who decades later becomes a chief advisor to Donald Trump. Do you, do you begin to see a little sticky plot forming here? <laughs> well, yes, I do. So I'm thinking, you know, this is the reason they're keeping these transcripts classified. And this is really the reason, because McCarthy has just walked right into the whole UFO thing and all of the classified research and technology surrounding that subject. And he's walked right into it. And more importantly, he's he's uncovering these people associated with communist cells very clearly. You know, he's not making this stuff up. And on top of this, we we have to go back. So wait, wait, wait. To, Are you implying yeah. that we had Soviet agents crawling over the country not because of nukes, but because of UFOs and Precisely. Roswell? Oh my God! What a great idea! <laughs> yeah, what a weird. Yeah. A, well, yeah. well it, it goes with the idea that history. What we think of as histories of a Temkin village, the real right. stuff, we're barely beginning to think we might get a chance to see. Right. Yeah. And this this is, I think, Richard, when, when you get right down to it, what McCarthy, I don't think he stumbles into this. The man is is uh, not the buffoon that, that the, the public history has painted him out to be by any stretch of the imagination. You know, he was a judge. He was a lawyer. That's you can tell that he's putting his legal training to use when you read these transcripts. You know, he sets things up very, very carefully and then springs the trap. But uh, I think it's his investigation of Monmouth and and 
General Electric and whatever they were doing down. Well, you know, one of the one of the big backstories of Roswell has to do with radar. Radar, yes, exactly. So that takes you right to Monmouth. It takes you right to Monmouth and what they were doing down there. But I think this is the reason why the army. By the way, down there is back where I used to live. It's called New Jersey. Right. <laughs> well, and in any in any case, I think this is this is the reason why the army went after him the way it did. Oh, it's obvious now. And it's obvious once you read the transcripts, and it's obvious uh, when you when you read the details of how he was set up. Okay, the, okay, Luella, come on, Luella, give us a few juicy tidbits. From the transcripts. Well, I don't have them right in front of me right now, but one of the things that is is very, very telling is that one of the head researchers there, uh, uh, a Dr. Bell, I don't even remember what his first name was, was down in Roswell. And McCarthy mentioned specifically the date of July 3rd, 1947. Now, McCarthy, when he mentions these dates... Well, wait, 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 hang on. That, that's Bell, Bell, date. Bell, Bell. Ma Bell worked intimately yes. with Ford Monmouth, so he could have been a descendant of Alexander Graham Bell. Well, I don't know, Richard. I don't know. Uh, I, I have no idea. My point here is that the the date that McCarthy mentions is exactly the date of Roswell. So, in other words, what you what you see McCarthy doing, and incidentally Roy Cohn, what you see them both doing in their in those hearings where they are present, is they're dropping that date repeatedly, and it's their way of bringing up the subject of UFOs without mentioning it directly and getting it into the transcript record. It becomes very clear. Obviously, the other yeah. Yeah, the other thing, the other thing that becomes very clear is McCarthy. Uh, this is something that you find in the transcripts is concerned about the disappearance of top secret documents from Fort Monmouth into the Air Force related to Blue Book. So, in other words, put all the dots together, and what McCarthy is trying to find out is where have these top secret documents gone. Who was responsible for their removal? Why is there nothing in the log about it? And why all of a sudden does the U.S. Air Force have jurisdiction over it? So in other words, you know, he is hot on the trail. And the U.S. Army has a problem. They've got to shut him down or the whole thing is going to blow up in their face. That's basically what you take away from it. Now, there's something else that emerges in the transcripts. He is also investigating the disappearance of millions of dollars of Allied occupation money that is printed up by the United States military for use in conquered Axis territory as we go into Europe. And much of that money disappears, and the plates to print it end up in odd places, including, according to Major uh, Jordan Racy Jordan in, in the House on American Activities Committee testimony that he gives, some of those occupation money plates for, for occupation Reichsmarks end up in the hands of the Soviet Union. And the person that is transferring those plates is Harry Hopkins, Roosevelt's top advisor, 
Now, why is this important for McCarthy? Because McCarthy gets on the trail of this occupation money and all the missing money that's involved with it. And I suspect that the reason why he's getting on, and I have no evidence of this, but I suspect that the reason why he's getting onto this is he's looking at all of this stuff going on with Fort Monmouth, and he's wondering where the hell is all the money coming to support all of this. So in other words, I think the other thing that he is uh, perhaps in danger of uncovering, and the reason why the Pentagon reacts so vociferously against the man and sets up the Army McCarthy hearings, is that he's also getting close to this very secret system of finance for all of these projects. And one of the mechanisms that they were using was occupation money and money laundering to set it all up. So yeah, I think I think there's much more to the McCarthy story. And the bottom line here is the, the public story of red baiting and all of that <laughs> is about as far from what's really going on in these in these closed sessions in the Senate congressional hearings. Well, it's it's obvious distraction. It's deliberate, you know, throw yes, together exactly. on the wall and nobody exactly. can figure out what was really going on. And the really exactly. going on is well, let let me let me tell you now and then we'll move into the next part. Sure. When you directed me in the book to look at Fort Monmouth and I remembered Project Diana. Yep. I started looking for data and except for a couple of press clippings and screwy half tones at the time of the actual oscillograph traces, there's no record anywhere of the results of Project Diana done by the U.S. government through the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, the first radar bounce of UHF (laughs) signals off the moon, and they've made it disappear. Yeah, I can believe that. I really can. Kind of like David Copperfield is planning to do tomorrow night. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I can believe that. But the record they left was stunningly important. So go to number six, which is right after, you know, the kind of headline in five. This is the results of Project Diana as published by the New York Herald and, you know, the, 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 you, the, um, uh, oh, what's that town? Anyway, there, there are a bunch of local papers that cover this, but all the major national news like AP, whatever, it's all gone, sucked into a vacuum. So look at that. On the left is the several hundred foot high standard World War II radar, you know, think uh, chain home from the Brits, radar uh, unit, which was basically a bed spring, much bigger, on a very tall steel tower. And they waited until the moon rose because the antenna could not be moved. So they... They aimed it at the horizon when they built it, and part of the. Uh, I have a question. Yeah, I have a question about that antenna. Is that a phased array? It kind of looks. Yeah, like exactly, exactly. All right. Okay. It was the next generation of sweep radar. Okay. Where instead of physically moving a dish, right, you electronically move the elements on the bed spring, right, and and, and that's how you got a three D image. Well, for people that are not radar savvy like you and I. Anyway, so they built this at Fort Monmouth. And in January, on the 10th of 1946, they used a standard World War II Korean War radar unit, Uh which which operated at UHF frequencies. 
Remember UHF television? Sure do. Yeah. How you used that to keep tipping the ad. Fiddling with it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, my God. I, I got all my exercise fiddling with my UHF <laughs> antennas in the in the living yeah. room. Anyway, so they used this and a standard World War II uh, radar transmitter to send a signal, an electromagnetic signal, to the moon and get the echo back. And that's the graph to the right. What do you notice that is absolutely, impossibly anomalous about that graph? Well, I'm trying to read what's underneath it, but the first thing is the big, huge peak on the left. I've got if, on my if you If you click on it, it gets bigger. Yeah, the first big thing is 100,000 miles, 200,000, 300,000, uh, uh, not 300. Yeah, and then in the middle, 238, the distance of the moon, okay? Right, I see the I see the second peak there at the distance of the moon. What's wrong with that graph? Well, first of all, if that graph is accurate, the distance of the moon that they're giving is different than most of the distance I've heard. But the other thing I'm looking at is there's little peaks and troughs way before you get to the moon that I'm wondering Yeah, about. I would I would think that's noise. Noise? All right. Yeah. You know. Remember these were, it, these were it, it does look it does look regular though. It looks it looks like it's kind of a declining harmonic in a certain sense. But anyway, that's just my pipe organist talk. <laughs> but um, well you can clearly see the echo from the moon at two hundred and thirty yeah, yeah, sure. thousand miles, which is give or sure. thirty you know, two forty you're, you're seeing quite a it's a very long, flat echo. Why? Yeah. Why? Yeah. It should be a ping. Yeah, remember a uh, hunt for red October? Send them right. one ping. ping yeah. It should be a ping, and it's a wah. Yeah. Why is it delayed? Answer. Drum roll, please, for Dr. Farrell. It's rattling around in the damn lunar dome. Yeah, that's exactly. Well, that was exactly my thing. Which it's takes you to number it's, seven. It's, it's going to be some resonance of look, some exact. Look at my number seven. This is a graph. I made up all by myself. Kinthea would be proud, I hope. And you see the blue, which is the uh -huh. transmitter. The red is the surface ping. And right. then the green is it rattling around in the dome in a resonance cavity before it's re-emitted facing the earth from the left and the right side of, well, of the map. That that resonance effect then would explain those other little troughs between the big one on the left and the moon's trough. Yes. Because you're, yes, that's what you're getting there. In other words, you know, I keep talking to my skeptics and I show them data and they go, duh. Oh, you you got to give us more than that. Well, the other thing that people need to remember is is radar is not a bounce. Radar is a secondary transmitter effect. So what you're doing when you beam radar at something is you're creating an electric current in the object that you're beaming the radar at, and it's that electric current that you're picking up. Oh, what, an, the radar exquisite, is what an exquisite detail, because it's, you'd almost think we wrote this script together, right? <laughs> because that was my first indication that the lunar dome, which you see in the right. Odysseus image, you see it is not just an inverted salad bowl of glass. It's a smart architecture filled with electrical circuits and conductivity, and it resonated 
electrically to the Army signal from Earth in 46. Yeah, that And without you, I would never have been put onto that, or maybe it would have been decades later or whatever. Yeah, that graph is very, very interesting and significant. I, I have to agree that that that's just it's it's those it, it, what grabs me about that graph, Richard, is precisely those peaks that you see between the big one on the left and then the the ping on the moon. Right. It's those peaks in between that grab me because that's those things look to me to be harmonic in their distribution of some sort or close to harmonic. But anyway, that's just me eyeballing it i'd have to sit and look at it see we Let's don't look. know yeah we don't know the time width of this graph right in other words is it only one ping or is it at the sum because normally when you have a weak signal you add frames you add you know signal to build up the, the, the signal and average out the noise yeah so are we looking at a several second photograph of an oscilloscope screen where the pings are coming in every 1.5 seconds because that's the time delay speed of light between the Earth and the moon. So you double that. So are we seeing harmonics in the dome magnified en route to Earth? You might be. You might be. You might even be seeing harmonics from the entire moon itself. Yeah. I would would go even that far. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so this was an overwhelmingly important piece of data, which none of my critics even look at. Of course not. But I'm I'm beginning to think now, if we project ahead, that mm-hmm. that the, the the next few months is gonna is gonna come to a to a to a cliff, a climax in terms of this why do we keep losing moon missions? <laughs> it's like, you know, fifty years ago when I've said this before and I'll say it again, we had nothing but the equivalent of Spock stone knives and bear skins. We did it five times out of seven with surveyor, mm-hmm. with with bailing wire and super glue and duct tape. And duct tape, yeah. Did they have duct tape yeah. in 67? Anyway, the point is that now we got all this super modern, you know, 3D printed technology, and we keep dunking them in something. It's like no one figures out, wait a minute, there's an X factor. And why? Because instead of going to the safe Apollo zone, where the glass is almost gone and you can be pretty lucky in getting down through it, even without, you know, imaging and laser 3D, uh, you know, geometry or whatever. They did it in the blind. They literally only had a radar that told them how high and how fast they were moving. And they throttled the engines. They came to a dead stop on the surface. And some of them slid. Some of them bounced. Surveyor 3 bounced three times down the slope of a crater, which was five degrees steeper than the one that flopped over uh, uh, Slim, the, the Japanese mission. So what's wrong with this picture? Well, my simple answer, based on this data, they're not accounting for the dome, period. And recently, and we're going to get into this in much more detail tomorrow night, uh, I think we can reconstruct the known history now of the landing of Odysseus, and I think very, very late in the game, and it may have been through this show, they suddenly realized there was a dome, and that's why they switched lasers. It had nothing to do 
with stupidly forgetting in a countdown to not flip a safety switch. I mean, that is so <laughs> outrageously absurd. I mean, the only thing that would be absurder is if the Secretary of Defense of the United States failed to the hospital off, failed off the, president. the president for a week. We are being covered with cover stories, and tonight, with the help of my you know, colleague and, and expert generalist, Joseph Farrell, we're going to figure out the clues and to try to figure out what the message is behind all the jumping dots, which do not call themselves by their real names, as you will see. So anyway, now let me let me go to the second really major thing in your book, which was you focused a lot on the test at the Aberdeen Proving Grounds of Atomic Annie. Would you yes. like to tell our audience who Atomic Annie was <laughs> and why she is crucial to this unfolding story? Well, Atomic Annie was a 28 centimeter, it's basically an 11 inch cannon that the United States Army developed. It was, you know, that's a that's a pretty hefty, big caliber weapon. Uh, they they designed this weapon to fling tactical nuclear artillery projectiles at the Russians. So this, it it was a very well designed gun. It could pivot through three hundred and sixty degrees azimuth. So, in other words, you didn't have to re-emplace the gun if you changed targets. You just swiveled. Oh, totally motorized. I draw totally motorized. Every yeah, I, yeah, everything. It was it was the United States military's one and only dual recoil gun, uh, which means that the barrel would would recoil in the cradle, and then the cradle itself and carriage would recoil as well. So it was a very stable platform. Um, the the basic design concept was it was a super on, gun for the time it was it was a super gun for the time the basic design dual recoil concept was based on world war ii long-range german artillery design Jules, so it was Jules Verne would have been proud oh yeah it was it was a very very beautiful piece of engineering it was designed to, to throw nuclear shells at the soviets but the interesting thing that i think eludes people about the weapon is that if you look at the one and only time that Atomic Annie was actually test firing a nuclear projectile, which it did out in Nevada, the projectile that it fired by that time was considered a tactical nuke, but the projectile had a yield of approximately 15 kilotons which was about the same yield as the big bomb that we dropped on Hiroshima. And that is a giveaway right there. Because if you look at that uh, little boy bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima and then compare it to the artillery shell of Atomic Annie about seven years later, you've just seen a dramatic, and I mean dramatic, decrease in the size of, of nuclear weapons, a dramatic miniaturization. So that's the first takeaway of atomic Annie. The second takeaway that I think, and I think you and I have something of a disagreement on this, I don't know, it's been a while since we talked, but the, the second thing I think that Monmouth was involved with atomic Annie was I think they were trying to develop a, a means of seeing inside of plasmas 
not just optically, but off the end of the optical spectrum into the radar and, and very possibly ultraviolet ranges of the spectrum. And the reason I say that is if you look at the if you look at the pictures of, of the fireball of the Trinity test, I, I put a picture of that fireball taken approximately one quarter of a second after the detonation of the Trinity test. I put that picture in my uh, newest book, The Demon in the Acre, because it's a very, very interesting picture because you can see you can see the discrete regions inside the plasma. Can you send a copy of that link to Keith in the Skype chat? Uh, you're not on Skype, no. Just uh, email. Well, I, um, I don't. I, the easiest thing would be to have him go online and look for it. I, I don't. Um, Do you have the link? Uh, no, I don't have the link. That's the problem. It's the Trinity test fireball, and uh, I'd have to. Yeah, we, we have posted quite a few of those over the last several months because of our discussions of Oppenheimer. So, but well, you, between now and when we put the archive up, we'll we'll have it inserted in your in your section. Yeah, well, that 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 picture is interesting, and it got me to thinking. Well, maybe they're trying to probe plasmas by means of other than just optical means, and maybe they were trying to develop those phased array radars to go peering into plasma. Now, I know that sounds absurd because if you go back to the Manhattan Project uh, and David Bohm, the famous physicist who was developing uranium plasmas, they were trying to figure out what was going on inside the plasma. So they, they would literally insert these little electrical probes into the uranium plasmas that they're shooting around in their psychotrons, and an amazing thing began to happen. Okay, we are at the top of the hour. Oh, okay. Top of the hour. My guest this morning is a really, really an amazingly interesting guy. I'm so pleased that we've known each other so long as we can now go through this incredible revolution that's coming at Warp 9 together. You're the clock? The clock is ticking. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. This is the countdown to the breakthrough paradigm shift that Earth needs desperately if it's to survive. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. 
You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.